welcome to the Shift Drink Podcast. Uh, my name is Ed Rudisome. He's sitting here with Arthur Black. Ah, namaste. <laughs> and today we have Summer Cooper with us. Hello, this is my cue to talk. <laughs> That's your cue to talk. <laughs> okay. So, um, Summer is a, a forager here in Indianapolis and provides a lot of uh, chefs and restaurants with some amazing product that is only found in the wild. And so we really wanted to... Uh, to kind of switch gears a little bit this week and do a food-related episode, um, and we thought there was no one better the, to start that off with than Summer. So is that a full-time, can you be like a full-time forager? I am starting to believe that maybe you can. When I started, I did not believe that you could. I was really skeptical. I've probably quit like five times, but I always get reeled back in. Like somebody will call me and be like, I need you to get me this, and then I'm like, I'm needed, this community needs me. I need to forage and I will get like right back into it. And it's been about five years that I've been doing it now and I feel like I'm just now hitting my stride. Like I'm just getting where I need to be, getting the knowledge I need and I kind of am starting to believe it could be a full-time thing. So is Indiana like a kick-ass foraging state? It's, I think probably anywhere you are where there's waste spaces or any plants that haven't been planted that there's wild space you can forage i i believe well this is like a reason that you came to mind to have a guest as a guest uh this week was you know this is like prime prime time for us you know we're like trying to find the fun mushrooms this is like it's getting moist the temperatures are dropping a little bit you're kind of hitting that sweet spot it is. Fall mushroom hunting is so good. Especially, I mean, everybody thinks spring morels like for mushrooms, but like fall mushroom hunting is amazing. And you bring in a lot more weight. Like morels are so light. You're not, even with the high dollar amount, like that's not when you're going to make your money. It's fall mushrooms for uh, sure. I had a buddy tell me the other day he was in Bloomington and found like 200 bucks worth of mushrooms on just two trees. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Once you know what you're doing and you've got the knowledge down and you've got a couple spots under your belt and you keep, keep them checked, yeah, it can... All right, so know what you're doing. I'm, I'm curious about this. Like, to me, and I, I'm not a forager, um, I would assume, like, the first thing to learn about being a forager is what not to eat so, like, you don't die or um, The first thing you should learn as a forager is not to eat it if you don't know it. So, so just where, don't where do go you out learn? there. Oh. So when you get started out, like, because, I, yeah, I wanted to address that, too. So, I mean, the two of us are definitely not foragers. We don't forage further than the kitchen. Uh, so, but, yeah, like, I mean, how do you determine what not to eat? Like, I mean, there's it's, it's just trial and error or is no, there resources? No, no, no. I don't trial and error right. anything. I would, I would think that could be pretty dangerous. There are a lot of resources, actually. And I guess that has, like, just been a recent development. I guess since, like, the 70s, before then, you could find no literature on wild edibles or anything. Because like, it was common knowledge. Like, people were doing it. Like, my great-grandma used to go out and pick wild mustard greens and feed that to her family and feed her family that way. It was done. And then when it stopped being done, people started to write about it and wanting to preserve the knowledge. So you I get- I forged in my fridge last night. Yeah, that's as far as I go. Field guides. Um, there are more and more wild edible books being written all the time by people who are actually doing it as opposed to people who are armchair foragers. We were talking about you earlier saying there are a lot of armchair sommeliers, but like 
there are a few people who are actually like traveling and doing the experience. What, what does that the mean? Same with so many, I like that. What does that. What does that mean? Armchair. It means you read a lot about it, but you don't, don't actually, actually participate. Do it. You don't do yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have all this like head knowledge, but you have no practical like experience. God, I could start writing a list right now. <laughs> that that is very applicable too. I'm, that's my new thing, man. I'm gonna start saying that. I've never heard that before. So how long have you huh. been doing this? Hold on a second. This we, is my. This has gotten away from us again. Um, <laughs> sooner or later, we'll get on a rhythm, people. What did you drink last night, Ed? Oh, geez. Um, what did I drink last night? Uh, well, I've been trying to, to lay off the well, alcohol. You can say, uh, you know, uh, like well, tea or well, something. Well, I've been trying. To, I'm going to qualify this. I've been trying to not drink since um, our last episode with uh, Ben Jones, where I, I ended up going out with Ben for the subsequent nine hours after recording. <laughs> And drinking a lot of tea punch and rum agricole. And now, having said that, um, last tea night punches were good. Last night, I did have a, a glass of um, Dictador Twenty, uh, a glass of rum at home. Rum, no surprise. <laughs> yeah, Summer? no surprise there. I had Bud Light. Is that totally unacceptable? No, it, it, a big it works, tall boy man. while I was sorting mushrooms. Totally, that <laughs> works. Awesome. Um, I had um, a Baron Pizzini Francia Corta. Um, so shameless plug for an upcoming podcast we're going to do on champagne and sparkling wine. Francia Corta to me is arguably one of the foremost um, producers of sparkling wine in the world. It's in Lombardy in northern Italy. And it's a blend of Pinot Noir Chardonnay with a max allowance of 50% Pinot Bianco. Um, check out Francia Corta if you've never had it. It's an amazing sparkling wine. And like Arthur said, we'll be talking about that in depth in an upcoming episode very soon. But yeah, getting back to you, I think, you know, I'm really fascinated. How does one... I don't feel like this is a career that you, you, you know, at, at 10 years old, you're like, I'm going to grow up and forage. Oh, my gosh. I thought I was going to be like a prairie girl or a oh, writer. So when I, was, <laughs> I wanted to be outside all the time. I read books about homesteaders constantly. I, my parents are super religious. Like, we didn't have a TV. Like, it was like play outside and read. That's what we did. And so... Yeah, it kind of was expected. Cool. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I'm kind of unemployable on top of that. So. <laughs> um, just in central Indiana, just west of um, the airport. All right. Just so right outside the suburbs, right when you get into the country. Kind of like just west of Plainfield or something. Yeah, if you, yeah. Just That's west built of up a lot since you were a child, I would assume. It has, yeah. There are lots of factories and stuff coming out that way, so. So were you out in the woods uh, as a small kid, wandering around, grabbing food? No, I didn't. I no? knew nothing about wild edibles as a child. I didn't even garden or anything like that. My dad planted a garden for fun, and I ate whatever my mom served me, pretty much. I didn't get into food until much later, probably in my 20s. Um, so what put you on the path of the finding the edibles? Uh, and we're talking about foraging. We're not talking about oh, like oh, oh. <laughs> edibles. So how did I get on that path? Yeah. Um, I thought I was going to be a farmer. And I, in my early 20s, I worked on a lot of farms. And I started my own farm at the age of 27, I think. And I just it ended up I was a bad farmer. Like I really <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was. I can't grow things. I would much rather see what like nature hashes out. Like I want to watch the battle of like the bugs coming in and like watching nature balance itself. I don't want to like go throw like a bunch of stuff out there and manage it. I think that'll come to me later in life because I can't keep I can't keep a philodendron alive. Like for as much as I've studied plant physiology in, in regards to vines and all that shit, 
Uh, I swear, man, I just do not have a green thumb. It's just I don't either. I'm fighting a severe lime tree at the moment. I've, you know, of course, obviously we're in the Midwest, not prime growing uh, oh, zone for a lime tree. tree, but it's potted. We bring it in because we, you know, we use the lime leaves um, in our Thai cuisine and such. But I've already killed one, and now I've got a second one that's doing well now. But now I have to bring it in to winter, and it doesn't like it. Little baby lime tree, keep going, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I killed my pink lemon too. I can commiserate. That's for a sure. bummer. Killed I know. What? I, had, I bought a pink lemon tree, and I oh. killed it already. Yeah. So, um, talking about things that grow in, in Indiana, like to me, there's a, a pretty considerable difference between northern Indiana and southern Indiana. Um, yeah. In terms of topography, in terms of soil structure, and in terms right. of um, climatic conditions. So totally. it's almost like we're positioned in a country to where things that grow in the north are kind of meeting their southernmost border. And then things that grow in the south, maybe perhaps are meeting their southern or northernmost border. So is that, and this is not, I, I'm just assuming this Well, common sense. No, there's, I mean, there's history behind that because the during the last ice age the glaciers, the glaciers didn't make it really much further south than indianapolis so like there's it's science pretty, behind it it's pretty flat land from like indianapolis going north and then once you get down to like bloomington indiana where indiana university is it gets a lot hillier yeah the drive from here to louisville is more enjoyable than the drive from here to chicago or Absolutely. detroit oh that's so true yeah there's actually a book um alan mcpherson i believe is his name and he wrote a lot about he writes a lot about like canoeing, tripping, and canoe tripping. <laughs> that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> canoe tipping. Um, anyways, Wild Indiana, basically. He writes about canoe trips in Indiana and all of this. And he wrote a book called Wild Edibles of Indiana and Adjacent States, I believe is the title. Oh, cool. And he goes over basically the different regions that you were just talking about. And I thought he broke them down into four or five, actually different ones and kind of breaks down what you can actually find in Indiana as far as the like photos and stuff there aren't good photos but it kind of will tell you what can be found here and where to just give it like an x kind of quadrant like northeast northwest yeah he breaks it down exactly and I, it's been so long since I've looked at the book, I can't remember the regions or anything, unfortunately. Yeah. But There's a lot of books out there. There um, are. You know, as I've got several sitting at home in some sort of pipe dream that I'm going to get off my ass one of these days and go out and find some cool ingredients. But I, like I, I was talking to you before we uh, started recording that... Um, you know, I just don't have enough knowledge to know what not to eat. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of people are apprehensive to, like, go out and forage themselves because of that, like, Arthur address, the fear of killing yourself. Killing poisoning yourself. yourself, absolutely, yeah. That should be a book, man. Like, shit not to eat when gathering. Right yeah. There. <laughs> yeah, actually, I do have an absolute, like, favorite far beyond any other. His name is Samuel Thayer. He write, he's written two really, really great foraging books. And he is far and away the best that I've seen. He's somebody who's been foraging since he was a teenager and has a lot of, like, hands-on experience and talks about his hands-on experience as opposed to, like, something he read in a book. Um, is this the gentleman that is often the keynote speaker at the uh, West Virginia Wild Foods Weekend? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Oh, my gosh. He's good, and everybody will say that. West but Virginia he, Wild what? So they're in the Midwest and, like, what, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, like, kind of concentrated in this part of the country, which is, again, pretty cool where, where we're located. There's a lot of these, like, wild food 
uh, and I think like they're foraging more weekends and festivals. Well, and yeah, some of them absolutely. are very old, like 30 years old, 40 years old. Huh. Oh, really? Mm. I had no idea. Yeah, I think that. the one in West Virginia has been going on for, I think, 35 years, something like that. I'm sure it started pretty small, but wow. now that there's more. That's amazing. Kind of a spotlight being placed on what you do. That's um, really cool. What he says anyways, though, is that each plant is a skill. Like, you learn each plant individually. Like, just because you know one or two plants doesn't mean you know all of them. So each one has to be learned individually. And, like, you only pick and eat things that you know. So that's how I approached it. I just started with one plant. I learned that one, started with my next one. And now five years later, almost six years later, I have a pretty good index. But it's just like when you see a carrot, you don't have to think through the identification steps of a freaking carrot. Like you look at it and you say, that's a carrot. Well, after you've done wild food for like that long, you look at it and you say, it's this. Like it's, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to go through each like step of IDing it. I'm like, I got this one, people. (laughs) It's a carrot. It almost becomes like a a muscle memory. And people always leave that out when I say it's a muscle memory. So it must not be correct. But that's how I compare it to. Like after you work out for a long time, you get that muscle memory. It's the same with your brain. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, being able to like spot, identify, you know, plants out in the wild. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen um, photos on your social media of things that you get really excited about. uh, And And you're like, what the hell is that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I didn't know you could eat that. it, it, It does pique my interest. And I'm like, I want to try it. And lately you've been bringing uh, some chicken of the woods to one of our restaurants. And like, I mean, everybody is flipping out about it. They're so good. Oh my gosh. What the hell is a chicken of the woods? I'll let summer. It's a mushroom that actually gets the texture of chicken after it is mature. A hundred percent. And it's, it's so close. I know everybody thinks everything tastes like chicken, but it's pretty close. The texture is, you, you think you're eating chicken breast. Yeah. I, We've been doing a really like simple pasta with it uh, at one of our restaurants, and and it's I took, I mean I've been taking it home whenever we put it on special. I've been taking some home for my wife and for myself because it's so delicious. Oh good. And I had not that ever had it. I mean I've had, uh, you know like hen of the woods or whatever. And I just, I thought it was the same thing, and they're like oh here's some chicken of the woods, and I had no idea. And when I bit in, I was like wow what is this? You know I. They, I'd never had... That was like my second mushroom I ever learned to ID. And it's really? so easy. Yeah, oyster was my first because I worked for Steve Spencer for a while and he was growing them. So I knew that one so easily. But yeah, I think Chicken of the Woods was my second one I ever found. Is there like a pizza in the woods? A pizza <laughs> of the woods? <laughs> no, um, there mushrooms isn't. Mushrooms that strangely Another one like called fried dish. chicken though. Like there's a chicken really? of the woods and there's a fried chicken one. Yeah, I've never found that one, but I'm interested for Those sure. Those sound like uh, taxonomy names. So it sounds very scientific. Like that's that's the, uh, the <laughs> they species. They all do have These their are all scientific the names. Group of mushrooms. <laughs> However, they're a lot harder to pronounce. So <laughs> this is the nice. seared chicken of the woods versus oh, the hen so of the woods versus the fried chicken of the woods. What do we call this? Tastes like chicken. Chicken <laughs> of the woods. And that is, I think, how a lot of them were actually named. <laughs> yeah. We do get so, buffalo chicken of the woods up in New York. That, that sounds awesome. <laughs> right. Um, so he, uh, he mentioned earlier uh, seeing pictures of things that get you excited. What, what are things where you find where you're like, right on, like this is gold mine? I mean, morels, obviously, because I'm like the worst morel hunter ever and that's such a bad thing for a forager because it's like the one thing yeah. that everybody's like willing to buy and wants and every spring I get a million texts like I would love to have some morels and I'm like I basically get enough to like feed my dad and my grandpa and like a few family members and that's it um ramps are a good one for sure 
I get really excited about harvesting ramps every year. It's just, it's for... It's Everybody a, freaks out about ramps now. I mean, it's I great, know. but it's pushed Everybody's the price up a lot. Everybody's got the pickled ramp thing. Uh, but the you have boards. to be careful when when um, hunt or uh, foraging for ramps, right? Because you could actually destroy the patch, right? Am yeah, I- that is... Yes, they say if you take more than 7%, like if you dig more than 7% every year, like you will definitely permanently damage the patch. Like it can't come back. It's a seven-year growth cycle for them from seed to, like, being able to I reproduce. No idea. Yeah, so if you just leave a little bit of the bulb and the root when you're harvesting them, it doesn't look as good, unfortunately. And it's a little bit harder, so not everybody wants to do that. But right. Because that's like something you have to keep in mind with, like, other, you know, things that you're foraging out there, like making sure that the ecosystem stays stable? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a responsibility. It's not something like... Yeah, if you're foraging, I believe it's your responsibility to know the plant, know how it grows, know what you can like safely and responsibly take, and what you can't, and like to follow that. Yeah, and that makes most sense people for sake of do. sustainability. I do find most people like do do that, and they do care. I do think they do. The majority of them. Yeah, I'm guessing that there's probably not a lot of foragers out there that are in it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or like when I mean, you were foraging. It's a side job. You're like, <laughs> right. when you uh, were drinking your Bud Light foraging, you probably didn't like throw the can over your shoulder when you were done. No, just leave I it didn't. Outside. I did yeah. not. So Eco-friendly foragers. Well, there, there we go. There's a good question for. What do you drink while you're foraging? What do I drink while I'm foraging? See, we always ask, what did you drink last night? But I mean, we don't go out walking around the woods. I usually wait until I get back. Yeah, like I wait. usually have two beers every day. I mushroom hunt in the morning. I come home. I have a beer in the afternoon, like while I'm weighing up and everything. And then I'll go about my business and then have another beer at night. And, but I don't like take anything out. Well, occasionally I'll take a flask. Like if I'm forging with other people. Or something. Yeah. yeah, a flask. It's fun to like smoke a joint and like pass the flask around when you're out <laughs> with a group. But like. You're when in I'm nature, by it's myself, really yeah. All of a sudden, I feel like becoming a forager. <laughs> I had that whole, whole yeah, wrong idea about this, man. But, like, this is our final podcast. 98% <laughs> of the time, I'm out by myself, and it's my job. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, how do you choose spots? Like, I mean, I know from talking with a few other people that do this as well, like, everyone's very protective of their spots. Of their spots. It takes a long time to find spots. Like I've spent all summer long just trying to add to my black trumpet repertoire. So I have like four or five black trumpet spots I will check weekly. But if I have like eight, I'm gonna get that much more. So like just spending the time to search out a new spot is like it takes hours and days and weeks. And so yeah, that's why people are so perfect. That's why I wouldn't be a good forager. Yeah. I'm just too competitive and a lot of like. Patience. Oh, yeah. I am. Yeah, I get. Like if, if I went bit. out for a whole day and I didn't find <laughs> shit. I, this sucks. It's a bad yeah, day, right. but when you have a good day, it's such a like it's oh it's it's like you just won a big like competition or something. It's such a high like it's highs and lows. Yeah, you have to kind of learn to mm. not take it so seriously. I think. What are some of the most common things you find around like, in, you know, in Indiana? Um, obviously, you, I mean, in different states you're going to find different things. Yeah, but. we don't get the porcinis, unfortunately. We get like a bolitus edulis, which isn't quite the same. It's, it, but it's not in abundance. I've never found one, unfortunately. So that's something that's really sought after that we don't really get. Um, we do get the maitakis, though, which we were just talking about, and the West Coast doesn't get those. Like those only grow on the east, east of the Mississippi. 
Um, what else? The ramps only grow east of the Mississippi. They don't get those out west either. Uh, you always hear about how good the foraging is out in the Pacific Northwest, but we do get a sample of like really special items that they don't get. Right. Um, yeah, anywhere you go, the plant profile is going to be a little bit different. So do you like always have to be out like way out Appalachia foraging like or there is there like urban foraging or rural or, uh, foraging? Yeah, you can basically forage anywhere. There anywhere there is waste space or wild space or trees. Mushrooms just have an association with trees. So some of them are symbiotic, meaning they have a relationship where it's beneficial for both the mushroom and the tree for them to grow together. Like the mushroom will bring special nutrients and more moisture and the tree will give it some of its like nutrients and they have a symbiotic relationship. And there are like others that are parasitical or they just break down the tree once it's dead. So anywhere there are trees, basically there are going to be mushrooms. It probably wouldn't be a good idea though to go where like there are trails in close proximity or anywhere where they might be like spraying pesticides to kind of... Anywhere they're Keep. spraying, definitely not. Um, as far as like roadsides and stuff, they've done studies. As long as you're about 500 feet off the road, well, that you're pretty far. good to go. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't have expected it to be that far. Really? Okay. Uh, that's the one study I've seen. It may not be that far, sure. but they, they did a comparison of blackberries picked from like 500 feet off the road and like out in the wilderness. And neither one had like significant pesticide or like chemical residue or anything they were pretty much tested the same you know i've noticed though you know now that you've said that it kind of jostles my memory i mean i remember walking to my grandmother's house um when i was young we used to kind of walk between my grandmother's house and my house as little kids and we would pick all sorts of roadside berries and oh stuff. yeah none of that exists where if she it's lived a back anymore. road it's gone. i don't yeah i don't like, worry about it i don't know it. if i guess they probably spray it now but i mean they let it all grow wild back then but maybe i guess uh urbanization has kind of taken over. off yeah yeah that's kind of disappointing yeah well and we had a customer actually last night um speaking of things that used to be incredibly common we had a um, older gentleman in to one of our restaurants last night and we have um a seasonal pawpaw ice cream oh, on nice. the menu at the moment and he has he came up to chef and said i haven't seen a pawpaw in 40 years Oh, and, really? I mean, I know for a fact because my father actually, so he grew up in this neighborhood. Uh, and for those of you not in Indianapolis, um, we are pretty much in the middle of the city. I mean, I'm just, we're just off into one of the neighborhoods called Fountain Square. My dad grew up in this neighborhood and he said, you know, growing up, they had pawpaws like in their yard. Oh, really? Um, and right here in Fountain Square. And that's obviously gone. That doesn't exist that I know of anymore around here. I don't really know. And yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we had a customer that hadn't seen it in 40 years. and like, Kind of like that's... a wee banana or something, right? Or Yeah, yeah a weed banana. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird... Uh, it's Custardy. Of, yeah. It's really mushy. Like persimmons. They're really hard to like... You got to take them basically straight from the tree and use them up. Right. They don't Same have a long shelf life, right? No, not at all. A lot of wild foods don't have a lot of shelf life, which is probably why they've fallen out of fashion with people shipping everything. Like mulberries, service berries, pawpaws, persimmons. None of those can be like shipped effectively, basically. And that's why I think they've fallen out of vogue, really. Mm, I think there's probably a thousand reasons why wild food and well, it's a lot of work farm to too, fork and, and organic food is... So how do you approach a restaurant? Like, I mean, you're, you're bringing in all these really great ingredients that you, like you said, you don't have a shelf life, but 
you know, I mean, I, I assume that you're walking in cold calling chefs often and they don't know who you are. Maybe at this point they do because you've been doing it for a while. But in the beginning, they had to have wondered, who is this tall, lanky girl with a basket full of mushrooms? That's so funny. I am so, like, afraid of rejection and, like, shy and timid. I know it's probably not coming off right now, but I'm very, like, <laughs> introverted. I'm so introverted, which is why I spend all my time alone in the woods. <laughs> a lot of the people I work with have actually sought me out and, like, oh, my gosh, this is a funny story. I wanted to work with Micah at Black Market for so long, and I was so intimidated to call him. <laughs> I swear. And finally he texted me, and I'm like, yes! I knew if I waited long enough, he was going to text me. Just wait around. It'll happen. It is. But once you get a reputation and you build, like, people know that you're serious. They know that you work hard. They know you're consistent. And they know what to expect from you. Word of mouth gets around and they will call you. And so I really, like, there are times when I, like, call a chef or text him out of the blue. And, like, but it's usually because one of my friends have recommended me or somebody. I haven't really gone out and, like, promoted myself or, like, pushed sales on people. or And I think people like that, too. I think that's one thing that people know that I'm not going to constantly bug them to take shit off my hands. And, like, right. if you want to work with me, that's awesome. If you don't, like, that's fine, too. <laughs> How many chefs do you think you work with around town? On a regular basis, probably about, I have, like, an, a core eight or so. Um, but really, I'm willing to work with anybody. I just, like I said, I don't like that sales part. It does, it grates on my personality. Like, yeah. if somebody seeks me out to work with me, I, I'm so happy and I'm, like, excited. But I'm not usually, like, out trying to constantly add. I've been really focused on just expanding my knowledge, really, for the last five years. And it's, I haven't done it full time by any means. I've usually had, like, a side job or something like that. But What about farmer's markets? I used to do them when I was farming, and I haven't done them since. But well, she was a bad farmer. She was a bad farmer. Yes. <laughs> it's something I've been thinking a lot about this year because I feel like the public now needs to be educated on wild mushrooms because there are a lot more people foraging, and we need more customers now. So that's going to be an education factor. Yeah, couldn't hurt. Yeah. I mean, so we talked a little bit about it previously, but so, I mean, there are dangers out there, and so I feel like personally... You know, whenever you talk to people such as yourself, you know, the first thing that, you know, Arthur and I think of, or a lot of us, like, foraging. That's dangerous. What You know, we've all seen the uh, movie and read the book with the guy in Alaska. What am I thinking of Oh, here? yeah. Um, yes, I love that book. What, Into the Wild. Into the Wild, thank you. Yeah. I like that a lot better than but the movie Wild. Think about, you Sam know, Thayer like, has oh, an awesome takedown of that, right. by the way, saying yeah. he starved to death. He did not eat something that poisoned him, and we just don't want to admit it because we all admire him so much. Like right. We don't want to say so, he, he made a foolish decision to go in with no food and not, like, the reason these remote places are so remote is because there aren't food sources. Like, people don't go where there aren't food sources. And he was out where there wasn't a food source improperly prepared. Is it as dangerous as I think a lot of us believe? Because I, I think that's, we've gotten so far away from it here in like 2016. Like you said, your, my grandmother, your grandmother, they went out and they would pick berries or they'd pick the, what they knew they could eat out of you know the fields and the woods and whatnot. And that's definitely was not my parents and definitely not myself. So I think there is an apprehension to like just pull something out of the ground, wash it up and eat it. Because what if we've been conditioned to like fear things that we don't understand? And there's that like that perpetuated belief that, you know, be careful because you could poison yourself and die. Like, well, is there really as big of a risk 
as you know, the media leads us to believe, like, if you eat the wrong mushroom, you're screwed, and they're out there everywhere. We're assuming you're also not going on a 300-mile hike or something, you know. Like. Sure. Well, there are risks. I think all of life carries its risks. Um, and with cultivated food as well, like parsnips, whether they're cultivated or wild, if you pick them in the sunlight while you're sweating, you're going to come up with a parsnip rash. It's terrible. Really? It blisters horribly. You end up with scarring. And it doesn't matter if it's cultivated or it's wild. So that's something you need to know about if you're growing them or if you're... All of food has its risks. Like, every part so, of the tomato plant if you're, if you're is poisonous. Sweating, except for the tomato. If you're sweating... Yeah, it's such a weird a combo. If you're sweating and the sun is shining you will, and you break the parsnip and get that juice on you, you will break out. I've had it before. Well, I thankfully didn't start. a whole bunch of parsnips. Yeah. It was and awful. put those in it's our body. painful. Yeah. And what were you saying about tomatoes? Every part of the tomato plant is poisonous except for the fruit, like the blossom, the leaves, That's a the roots. Yeah, the night, it's a nightshade. Same with potatoes. Um, yeah, there are. Wow, I'm never eating anything ever again. Rhubarb <laughs> leaves are toxic. Yeah, you can only eat that sim. Like, they're. Death by potato. Yeah, there are lots I did know of, that about rhubarb because yeah. that was one thing that my dad always did grow as we were kids. He had yeah. a big rhubarb patch and we I always had rhubarb pie and. Yeah, I think it's the only thing we ever really did is rhubarb pie. But. I think apple seeds have a little bit of cyanide or something in them, too, yeah. or is it arsenic? Yeah, cyanide. so there are all kinds of cultivated things that carry the risk, too. It's just common knowledge with us. Like, we know not to eat a green potato, and we've just lost that knowledge. It will be, it will come back if we apply ourselves to, like, knowing it, for sure. Kind of got an impulse to go be a pagan. <laughs> <laughs> go hang out. Dance around the fire. So I mean, but that that kind of feeds into exactly what we've been told. Like everything's dangerous. Now I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, tomatoes are poisonous and parsnips are poisonous. We have that culture that just like wants to scare the shit out of you constantly. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, that's what I was getting at. Like we have this like fear that's constantly being fed into us. And, oh like, yeah. But you know, then you talk to somebody like you, and, and like you're out there like trying all kinds of different things. If you go to our website, you can find potato repellent. For- <laughs> Fourteen ninety nine, short time only. Our new, our new uh, line of yeah. It doesn't look as un uh, maybe uh, curated is the wrong word, but I've studied a lot of this stuff and handled it many many times before. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna take this to my kitchen and like work with it now. It's not like what you see on social media as I just found this plant I've never heard of and I'm gonna pick it and use it. Like I have done the study. I have right. I've checked with other people. Uh, yeah, they recommend handling something like three or four times before you actually go and like use it. Okay. I don't always follow that, but a lot of times I do. Like a lot of times I'll pick a mushroom and bring it home, take a spore print, like throw it out, do that again like three or four times. And finally I'm like, I am positive this is what it is and I'm going to go ahead and eat it. And doing that, I've never been sick. I've never eaten a wild food and gotten sick from it. Like, and... I probably eat more wild food than anyone I know. Not that I know anybody who <laughs> consumes a ton of wild food, but yeah, I've never had any problems at all. How often do you find like cool new things that you've never tried before? Um, it's a matter of like teaching yourself to see these new things, I think, because yeah, you'll you get out. Yeah, you'll get out and you'll have like I'm looking for this in my head and that's what you'll see. And then all of a sudden you learn a, you'll learn a new plant and you'll start seeing that one. And so do you go out with a so it's like seeing like a blue Volkswagen. Once you notice one, now you're going to see it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Or you get a new car and all of a sudden you notice everybody else is driving your same car. Yeah. It's teaching yourself to see these things. 
do you just go out with your space phone or do you is there a certain book or guide with pictures of what it's, it's actually recommended that you use several different guides um just cross-checking a lot of cross-checking like no no foraging author will be like only use my guide everyone recommends like use three or four and really no cross-reference yeah nobody so you, really recommends you've got a backpack you have your books with you or i'll have my phone and just start looking at things up online too but now when i go out since i've been doing it for a while i have a pretty good idea of what i'm wanting to bring home and if that isn't happening, I might change my focus and bring something else just so I'm not coming home empty-handed and wasting my entire day and not getting paid that day. Um, but usually, yeah, now I'll know. I'll go out. I'll know what sells. I know what people want to work with after doing it for a while. At first, I was just, like, bringing stuff and going, oh, I have this, and are you interested, and this is what I found about it. And Then you had to be a salesman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully, there are a lot of, like, it was really new and exciting, so there were a lot of people who were just, like, gung-ho to, like, get more experience and knowledge the same way I was and so and now we have a better idea of like what works and what doesn't yeah I've seen I mean being on the restaurant side like in the last probably six years I would say definitely a lot more interest I mean we see we do see a lot more people cold calling you know like guys showing up with a basket like hey I've got this and I've got that and you know we've got kind of our core of people that we like to work with and yourself included there Um, but you know like are you seeing kind of a renewed interest amongst like people that maybe like took the same path you did? They did, they thought farming was the path they were going to take, and then maybe they didn't like it so much, or they weren't good at it. Um, no, not so much farming. No? I I don't know a lot of other foragers. Really, I don't have like a community of foragers around me that I consult with or whatever. Um, okay. Social media, I follow a lot of foragers. A lot of them are in Cleveland. Um, a lot of them are in the UK. Foraging is so much bigger in the UK than it is in the States really? right now. Yeah, it seems like they have like just so many people doing it. We don't it's, have an Indiana Foragers Guild? No, there is a Hoosier Mushroom Society, though, and I learned so much from them. They are so like generous with their knowledge, and they have, hold classes. And I a learned, Hoosier Mushroom Society. Yeah, I learned so much from them. I didn't I'm still for people out there that are like interested like on a... Like an armchair forager level, you know, they want to maybe go out on a weekend. Like that would be kind of a path. That's where I would start. Yeah, I, I, you can get knowledge from anywhere. It's just the application of yourself to go get it, basically. So I use social media. I use YouTube. I use field guides. I use wherever I can get that knowledge. Like the thing about social media that's really nice is you can see whatever other foragers are bringing in and you can go look for that. Oh, right. If you're not like totally applying yourself to be out every day, it's a nice little shortcut. Old world meets the new world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, a lot of times like our, a lot of mushroom guides and things are written for the Pacific Northwest and our seasons aren't the same as theirs are. Right. So to know what's coming in season, you kind of have to watch what everybody else is doing. Actually something I was really curious about and I was, trying to figure it into a conversation you just segued there just a is could you give us or at least the listeners a, a brief kind of breakdown of, of seasons and sort of primary things that are harvested in according to indiana seasons oh absolutely for sure um so the spring is big on morels and ramps um i would think those are the two things you think of when okay. you think of wild food and spring summertime is chanterelle season here in indiana we get our chanterelles around July 1st, and they go into September. Um, 
So that skip between morel season and chanterelle season seems pretty significant to me. Like that's my downtime in between, besides winter, like in, when ramps and morels end and then you're waiting for chanterelles to come on. A lot of, I mean, there's all obviously all kinds of plants and stuff, but there isn't like a big known mushroom in between those two. And then chanterelle season leads right into fall mushrooms and you'll go straight from picking chanterelles to fall mushrooms and you don't have that lag. And then you've got chicken of the woods usually pops um, somewhere in the middle of chanterelle season. And then you've got your um, hen of the woods coming on, bluets, hedgehogs, black trumpets, um, there are tons of them. Wood ears, wild anoki. Okay, cool. And then the winter. Yeah, what do you do in the winter? Do you go out? Hibernate. Yeah, hibernate. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes I'll work like a regular job. Sometimes I won't. Like when I was single, obviously, I was always working a regular job. I do like to keep something online just so I leave my house and like interact with people. And yeah. Don't Before like you move out to a shack up. in Montana. Become a start, hermit. <laughs> right, yeah. Another Ted Kaczynski. Oh she my used God. to forage in Indiana. <laughs> and then she blew things up. <laughs> yeah, That's terrible. Stop it. <laughs> right. We don't know what happened. She ate a bad mushroom and started sending pipe bombs to sommeliers. <laughs> Armchair sommeliers. Armchair sommeliers. <laughs> mm. I mean, uh, so we, we chatted a little bit before we... Uh, started recording today <clears throat> I mean for somebody that's really surrounded by nature and looking for food out there in the woods that I mean it doesn't get any closer to nature than that um, I mean it literally goes from one moment growing from the earth to your you know your stash You're like the freshest food and, and, ever right but so um, I had mentioned that I was in uh, Panama last July with a gentleman uh, named Jaime uh, took us around in Boquete um, shout out to Jaime if you happen to be listening in the mountains of Poquete. But um, we went horseback riding with him in Caldera. And as we were, we were, uh, he was showing us a lot of the, um, you know, local plants and stuff. And we're pulling fruit off the trees. And, you know, he's teaching us how to eat them and what they taste like. And, and he got really animated and visibly angry when he uh, started talking about supermarkets uh he couldn't believe that anybody in this town would possibly buy anything from a supermarket because it's like this land of plenty in the mountains and in panama and it really irritated him to see anything wrapped in plastic or to see people buying food that they could get for free out in the forest i mean how do you feel about that i grew up eating food from the supermarket (laughs) so i probably don't have the same quite the same view as he does um like I said, I wasn't big on, like, my family wasn't big on gardening or anything. My grandfather was a farmer. He raised cattle and sheep, and he sheared professionally. Um, but As opposed I, to the amateur shears. Yeah. <laughs> All those well, sheep actually, out there with bad haircuts. That's, that's, that's a horrible image right there. No, well, yeah. There are people Dude, who just shave their own flocks. Yeah. Well, yeah. You need to take some shearing classes. <laughs> you are um, an amateur. So he was, like, into that. But my, my parents, you know, they were just raising a bunch of kids and doing what they could. So, like, they were probably just like everybody else's suburban parents. And not that I grew up in the suburbs, suburbs, but, like, 
they had that mindset basically and my my parents they still very much have that mindset like my dad says oh if the grocery stores go down summer can feed us out of a ditch don't worry but that's their <laughs> attitude they don't think it's like some cool thing or like summer can feed us <laughs> out of a ditch yeah <laughs> but they prefer to go to the grocery store I think and it is a change in your taste because a lot of wild things are a lot more earthy I my tastes have changed so much like more Since things with bitterness. Yeah, yeah and those those bitter things are really good for you, and you need them. But we've just gotten away like sweet and salty are Amer- what Americans like. Yeah, pretty we're, much. yeah it's, we're we're our biggest aversion is to, to bitterness, no doubt. Yeah. Well, I definitely feel like it's our parents' generation. I mean, I guess we ought to qualify that by saying we're all in the similar age group, late thirties, early forties. I guess I'm the only one in the early forties, but regardless, like, yeah, my parents are the same way. Like they. Definitely. I mean, they lost touch. You know, there's a big gap between what my grandmother ate and, you know, what she grew up eating and what she ate her whole life. And then what my parents eat and have eaten their whole life. And then, like, I feel like we're kind of circling back around and rediscovering my grandparents' generation a lot more um, out of, I don't know, either necessity because we're destroying our planet or maybe it's just a, a food consciousness that exists out there now. I think people are just longing for that connection. I, 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 well, I don't know. Maybe. I love the connection with my food. I like to know, like, I told you I'm going to go buy that cutting board after here from, like, a chef that I just love to know that, like, somebody I knew touched it, you know what I mean, and made it with their hands. And I think a lot of people like to know, like, the girl who picked my mushrooms is coming in to deliver them, and I'm going to talk to her, and I'm going to talk to her about how the season is going, and I'll know even though I'm stuck in a kitchen for 80 hours a week, I still know what's going on out there because I have this connection to this person. There's been a tragic disconnect culturally between where food comes from, how it gets processed, then going into the body. And the exchange you just mentioned between you know, the cutting board and then you know, bringing food into local chefs and this girl's bringing in these mushrooms, that's, there's, there's power there, man. That, that's, that's prana. It's an exchange between the, the earth and what's, what's going into your body. And food is... An unquestionable source of prana. Energy, yo. Spirit, your chi. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that in our own restaurants. I mean, people that are, you know, 10 years ago would refuse to eat anything that it was like a clearly identified animal part in it, right? I mean, yeah. it was the, it's the boneless, skinless chicken breast generation, you know? I feel like my parents are very much a part of that. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I, and I, I also feel like we're, we're constantly battling that. In the Absolutely, man. You know, from marketing side, I mean, from the FDA. I mean, there ain't no energy in fish sticks. <laughs> <laughs> there ain't. Doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, we've made a conscious effort where we're recording today here at Rook, um, our contemporary Asian restaurant. Well, um, Chef Carlos is uh, from the Philippines, and so we have a dish on the menu that we've had since we opened, uh, which in the Philippines is called sisig. It's uh, a lot of meat from the head of a pig, um, kind of done in like hash style. Oh yeah. Um, and so, but he chose to put it on the menu as pig face hash because he wanted people to have that connection and to know that like, this is not some sort of, you know, faceless animal that you can just imagine like a chicken breast came from out of, out of space and landed perfectly cooked on your plate. Like this was an, an animal that had to, you know, die for you to be able to enjoy it. And we, it's our responsibility as diners, consumers, foragers to like enjoy as much of the earth as we can Where was I without at? waste. 
I was somewhere. I think I was in D.C. and we went to this place, and it was. Uh, I like how he says, "I think I was in D.C." because I, I know last time you were in D.C., <laughs> there was probably a lot of mezcal. There was a lot of mezcal, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was uh, it was definitely a pork themed place, and they were just gratuitous with like you went in the bathroom and there were just pictures of pigs all over the bathroom, just covered every single inch of it, and it's like. Do I want to go back out and finish my plate? I just feel guilty or hungry. Like I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, there's a balance for sure. Yeah, they weren't bashful at all about you know you're you are eating pig tonight and these pigs, <laughs> these pigs had lives they existed. So do we get to go to your house and is there going to be photos of like mushrooms and ramps? And oh my god, I have no photos on my wall okay. at all. It might be a little weird. I think it'd be like oh, look at all these mushrooms. It's like a study a field guide. It could be Wallpaper. worse, you know. You could have yeah. a room full of unicorns or something, you know. That would be creepy. I worked at a meat processing plant for a while. Did and you? it was it was an amazing experience. Like I was so thankful to have that experience. Um, it made me the just the anatomy of an animal is so fascinating. Like I I worked there for probably a year and I learned more in that year. I think that I've worked like learned working a year anywhere else. It's such an intricate business. It's amazing. It really is. It made me like respect butchers so sure. much. I have so much respect for that job now. I'm just like, you know about as much as a doctor knows. Like as far as the anima the anatomy of an animal, like that knowledge is oh, it's insane. Like it's an insane amount of knowledge. Well, you've been I'm on like, both sides. I mean, you, right, yeah. I mean, you've gone from like meat processing to like, I feel like I was like applying That's myself great. to trying to learn it, and like I like I just touched the tip of the iceberg. I just got an image of the villain from Gangs of New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's butcher, he's but each animal pigs. is unique, and to learn like the mus musculars, right. like how to break it down, like looking at that mus muscle. I can't even. Okay, never mind. What if you no, start there's talking? There's some really cool. Like, there's a lot of butchers that like. I mean, one of my favorite um, cuts is the secreto, um, which I'm not going to go into the depth of it, but it, it's. It's very often overlooked. Um, Spanish butchers have known about this particular area. If, I, if I'm right, it's just behind the shoulder, but like it, it often just kind of gets grouped into two other cuts. But you know, they, that's why it's secreto, right? It's this the secret, and it's just this beautiful piece of meat that you can get off of a pig. But um, and you're, most butchers aren't aware that it's there, you know. But um, we've started to see it a little bit more uh, coming. Is that funny? Uh, onto the market. My manager, when I was working at this processing plant, was explaining to me, like, they'll rename a piece, like, every 20, 30 years. Like, they're going to rename a cut, like, so it sounds more trendy or something mm. you want to serve. And so if you're doing, like, history of this cut of meat, like, it might disappear because it was called something completely different. That's hmm. interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And you also have new flavors. And are, they'll cut it in a different way. Yeah. Well, and you get globalization, so like, I mean, secreto, right? I mean, it's a Spanish word. That doesn't make much sense to anybody in the United States. So, I mean, that might leach through, though. You know, with, we obviously have adopted a lot of French words into our cuisine. Um, There's, tapas, um, that was probably yeah. unheard of 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, very much so, uh, especially in these parts. Um, even dim sum. <laughs> even dim sum, yeah, that's still kind of creeping on around here, tragically. I was um, teaching a t uh, class on taste and taste physiology a week or so ago, and in preparing for it, there's a few new senses that they're trying to push to kind of get recognized. So after umami, there's one called uh, kokumi, which is um, calcium-based uh, receptors or savory. So 
it's savory like umami, but it's not monosodium glutamate. It's more What's it called? Uh, kokumi. K-O-K-U-M-I. And then um, there's another one. And Japanese. I, oh, the Japanese. Of course. Yeah, yeah they're so... Japanese food labs are trying to oh get me as So far above and beyond us. And then oh, I, was at, um, I was at Siam Square a week or so ago and experienced the seventh sense they're trying to get pushed through, which is piquance. It's a, a heat receptor-oriented taste where um, certain components within peppers... Um, bind to certain receptors on the palate and it actually tricks the mind's uh, heat detection threshold to lower about 20 degrees. So that's right. why you kind of start sweating and you feel heat, although it's not, it's room temperature. You know, so it's not actually hot, but you feel the heat. So, you know. That's interesting. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Cool stuff. Um, and, you know, 15 years ago, no one had heard of umami. Right, exactly. We'll have to definitely do an episode one of these days on glutamic acid. <laughs> I can yeah. get, get on my Get some box. skipjack tuna. <laughs> Here we go. Savory. So uh, back to summer. I, I've got to ask. I mean, you, you've been out there doing this, what, professionally for what, six years, seven years? I, it's been about five or six five years, or six years, I believe, yeah. So what do you think is the most underrated plant or fungus or what out there? Like something that you're really into, but people just haven't really. There have really, been so many things. Yeah? Has it changed all the time? <laughs> No, I think it's just a lot more special to you if you go out and pick it and you learn about it and then you know so much about the plant by the time you pick it that it's already special to you. If you just take it to someone who has that doesn't have that same connection with it, it might not taste as special. Does that make sense? Right. So like to me You're like You're emotionally connected yeah, to it already. That's so odd, but yes, yes, I do feel that connection sometimes. So I think milkweed, like I just love the taste of milkweed. Like I love the socks when they're really fresh. I love the buds. Like, but so for those of our listeners out there that don't know what milkweed tastes like, how would you describe it? It's been described as like a fresh, crunchy green bean. It's a little more fruity though. It's a little more like floral. Um, And it does have that latex that some people probably can't get past. To me, it's not a, like it doesn't bother me. It's not a factor. I love the taste of it, like raw, cooked, anyway. And everybody I've given it to has just like been totally unimpressed. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> like my sisters, people at farmer's markets. But I used to be like, this is so good. So, yeah, that's normally like the one that I've like really loved that I can't really seem to find anybody who feels the same way about it. People really love the pods, though. Before they um, get all that silk inside of them, mm-hmm. you can eat the pods. And people like that, but... I'll eat any part of the plant, really, and think it's delicious. Do you cook yourself? I do, yeah. I mean, I'm not a chef or sure. anything, but, like, I definitely – I want to experiment as much of it with the product I'm selling as possible because, like, if I don't know what I'm selling, then how can I tell you how to use it or the flavor profile well, or whatever? towards credibility, sure. Yeah. yeah, and I don't have, like, a sommelier's taste profile or that – I'm not a great super taster or anything, but I have something to lend, I think, just from being a consumer myself. Well, your palate's got to be just completely different than ours. I mean, you're, you're trying things that I don't know how to compare, the, you know, the quality. I mean, if I you brought me milkweed, I would say, okay, yeah, uh, this is now my baseline for milkweed. I mean, if I got it from someone else, I would use that as the baseline because it's not something that I regularly consume. Yeah, I... I'll try just about anything, but I feel like most people in food are kind of like that. Yeah, experimental. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Most people who are really drawn deeply into the food business are very experimental. Yeah. I'll, I'll like eat that. anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, too easy of a layup. So uh, 
What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Plant or animal? The weirdest? Oh my gosh, this is so putting me on the spot. Can you get back to me in like 15 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> How about you, Arthur? What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? I mean, oh, you're calling them out. Uh, there's a lot of weird shit I've eaten. Yeah, we've um, traveled a little bit. Yeah, you know, the things in other countries you can get a chance to try and check out. Right. Cultural insights, you know, bugs. Yeah, I've eaten insects, bugs, like crickets, worms, mealworms, crickets. that kind of thing. I feel like you were one Is of those little really girls weird? that ate a lot of bugs. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I wasn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, she's just If an, I would have known they were adult. edible, though, it might have been different. <laughs> well, horse. Uh, sashimi horse was definitely kooky, but delicious. Oh, you've eaten horse? Uh, I've eaten cured horse, which is kind of a staple of northern Italy How is a number it? of times. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's just like cured meat, although extremely gamey if you're oh, eating it, it that way. I really like gamey It's very lean. Very, I do. Um, well, the, the horse I had in Japan, which was just sashimi, which was just raw, was actually pretty damn fatty. Okay. I mean, it was beautiful. Um, so I don't know if it's a different cut. Or what? But they in Japan they just served up slivers with chives and a little bit of citrus, and it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, raw whale, shark fin stuff. Uh, oh yeah, yeah I I'll stay away from the shark fin. I mean, just that's terrible, terrible practice. I mean, when you're in, you know, I've been to uh, Chinatown in Bangkok, which is. <laughs> Right, a Chinatown in the United States is nothing compared to Chinatown in Bangkok. Because I mean, there's like 60 percent of the population that's Chinese blood in Bangkok, and I mean, it's bird's nest soup and shark fin soup advertised everywhere. You see, I refused to uh, eat shark fin soup because of the the unsustainable practices. Right. Um, but yeah, my weirdest thing probably would have been um, from. Well, it was a Thai dish. It wasn't actually. From Thailand, I actually uh, had a dinner party at my house. My wife had a bunch of her friends over, and um, one of her friends is from the southern part of Thailand. She was actually from Phuket, which we've talked about before because we had rum from Phuket a couple weeks ago. Um, and there is a dish in Thailand called Nam Prik, uh, which is really not very descriptive. Uh, it's just kind of a spicy paste. But it's, I always liken it to like Thailand's version of salsa. Oh. Um, like everybody's got their own recipe. Yeah. Everybody's going to make it different. And there's also regional differences. Um, and so I've always had it kind of Nempreg uh, Num or Nempreg, uh, gosh, Nempreg Ong, I guess would be the other one. Um, but again, there's differences with how everybody makes it. So anyhow, her friend decides to uh, make some Nempreg from the Southern style. And I wasn't, didn't had, had no idea how it was made. And so my wife puts just a little, maybe like a half a teaspoon on her plate to eat. And I was like, oh, I love Namprik. This is one of my favorite things to eat. So I put just a ton on my plate. And I, you know, my wife gagged it down. I mean, and it was, I was a little bit, you know, uh, embarrassed. I was like, wow, your friend just spent like six hours making this meal for us. And that's the reaction. Like, I mean, I felt that that was kind of a, offensive, you know. And so I ate it, and I was like, you know, it tastes like a little like aluminum and like or like old anodized steel, something like that. But you know, I didn't really say anything. I was just like, whatever. And so we we happened to be attending another dinner party uh, a week later. It was someone's birthday, and one of the women that had been at the party the prior week said here you know they were passing plates around she's like here do you want some Namprik and I said well I don't know is it like the style we had last week or is this more of like a Bangkok style because that one last week kind of tasted a little metallic and she said oh no 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 this one doesn't have any beetles in it 
And I, I, I said, oh, I, I'm, are you kidding? And she's like, no, like, you know, like the bugs. I'm like, well, what bugs? She goes, you know, they kind of walk on the water. And I'm like, water beetles. Fantastic. That was what was in there. Where did she get them? Where did she get them? Uh, I didn't ask. I never okay. had <laughs> conversation ended right there. <laughs> right. That is what I want to know. How did she source these water beetles? Right. <laughs> are these organic? Are these farm raised? <laughs> right, yeah. I don't think you can get farm raised water beetles. Free range. Free range. <laughs> Water beetles. Free range might be more horrifying than farm raised. <laughs> oh oh, I found these in my basement. Uh, I think the worst thing uh, after all that stuff for me would probably be the live octopus. Oh, uh, you've done the live octopus. No, yeah. I don't think yeah. I could. I don't yeah. think Where I could. Where are you in Korea? Uh, I was in Japan. Japan, And yeah. it's, it's literally, it's like one of us is going down. They grasp. It's, it's about, they oh yeah, they hold try on your to, tongue. The tentacles will wrap around your tongue. So you're just like, ah, rah, 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 rah. Yeah, that like, is crazy. They're like, no, I don't think I could. It's just totally like, you or me is dying. <laughs> I've like started like to make mushroom dishes before and just saw like tons of maggots in there and was like, fuck it. I'm just going to put everything in here. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I think that you ate both of your arms. No, I could no. not eat a live octopus. I couldn't. And I'm not eating a bowl full of maggots. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> Wow. wow. Yeah, you there, win. Yeah, I have. I'm not you kidding. I'm just about like, that? you know what? I freaking like spent so much time making this and I'm going to do it. <laughs> She's like, give me 15 minutes. I need to think about whether or not the maggots were the weirdest thing. Trump. <laughs> I read as a kid, though, about people like moving from India to like the European nations and not getting what they needed because like the lentils were less clean in India and they were right. eating insects along with it. So like to me that kind of normalized it and now I think, oh, well, if there's insects in your food with what you picked, it's it's okay, it's good for you. Protein. <laughs> You're not gonna get sick. Yeah, I've had crickets, I don't, I mean, crickets willingly. Crickets are delicious. Yeah, crickets are They're pretty really tasty. tasty. Grasshoppers are really good as well. Oh, I like grasshoppers too, yeah, yeah. those are good. And that's, those are kinds of foods that we like, would love to be able to forage, but yeah. the, the uh, Board of Health doesn't uh, quite agree with our foraging of, of grasshoppers. They I don't say think that's going to be the protein of the future. List. Well, they say it, insects are where it's going to be. Let's let's hope not. <laughs> really? Oh, like, I'm okay. Exactly. To, I'm okay to eat it on by choice, but if that's the only protein left on the planet, oh I don't no, know they're talking about like flowers the next. and oh, stuff like sure. that. Just like processing it into the stuff it's we the eat already. The next chicken of the sea. The chicken of the, the sea. Chicken of the, the chicken of the. Well, let's concentrate on the chicken of the woods right now. Grasshopper <laughs> tacos. Those are good. So I guess you know, as we wrap up here today, I mean, what do you think is a good um, dish that you know amateur foragers could kind of go out, hunt down, and then make it home. I mean... Wood sorrel is always a good one. That's something you always eat as a kid anyways, without even, like, knowing what it is. Like, you are, like, weirdly drawn to it, and you eat it. Do you remember as a child sorrel. eating, like, the yeah. wood sorrel? And it was, like, lemony, and, like, it's so odd, but instinctively children know, like, that's good, and I'm going to eat it. Yeah, so wood sorrel is always a good one. It just, like, looks like clover, only it's got a heart-shaped leaf instead of right. the rounded leaf. So, yeah, I would say wood sorrel is always a good one to serve. Sorrel's cool. I've had, it's um, in a lot of people's yards. I at a dinner one time. There's a sorrel soup, and I paired it with um, Chablis. This tits. It's oh, solid. Awesome. Absolutely solid. Sounds delicious. Oh, yeah, and dandelion. Dandelion's super easy. It's in everyone's yard, and everyone knows what it looks like. It's so good for you. So... Those of uh, those, our listeners out there that would like to like kind of follow you in your travels, I, I follow you on Instagram, I believe, and yeah. I get to see a lot of the plants. That's where I get a lot of uh, knowledge, A, about what's out there, and like B, what's kind of coming into season, uh, at least in our area here in the Midwest. 
Um, what is your Instagram uh, username? It's The Essential Forager, and I'm also working on a website. It's going to be TheEssentialForager.com. Um, it's coming very slow, though. So um, Understood. TheEssentialForager.com, coming yeah. soon, not, not quite. And then on Instagram, I am The Essential Forager, and that's really the only social media I do anymore. I feel like one is so much to keep up with, so... No, Instagram's a great medium, especially for what you do. So, I mean, and like you said, with other foragers connecting to you and being able to see visually what Absolutely. plants look like. Yeah, we all learn from each other, I feel like. It's, it's a very valuable resource for me. I value it, for sure. That connection with other people that aren't, like, close and somebody I wouldn't otherwise be able to reach out to. Well, I appreciate you coming and visiting us today and taking yeah, some time out Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so flattered that you guys asked me. I'm seriously, thank you so much. Well, we'll have to have you back in the spring and talk ramps, and you oh, know, maybe we'll yeah. have uh, one of the chefs fix a dish for us, and then you can nice. hear us smacking our lips and such while we. Or uh, that's a like, good this idea. Is too yeah, weird. of course. It's always, it's always great to listen to people. Uh, oh, we we forgot the one last question. You have a hangover cure. Farmers markets. I heard you guys asking that question on your other podcast, and I was like. I have gone to farmers markets. You were market yelling at the podcast. No farmers so market. So hung over, like I'm not kidding. And by like the time you get everything set up and you're ready to go, it is gone. You have worked it off. I'm not kidding. Like it's the best cure. <laughs> Just go visit a farmers Just market. Just go. No, set up one. Oh, go set one up. All everything there. <laughs> go totally set it up. Than by the time you're done setting up, you hours. will be cured. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess movement, basically. Yeah. yeah. There. Yeah. Eat and move. I found that out the hard way one time. I uh, ended up taking a, an unexpected five-mile hike through the woods, uh, hungover. Yeah, it was terrible. And by the time you got back, you didn't feel it, though, I know, you? I was fine. Uh, you burst but it off. It was only because I had committed to it prior to the, nights, uh, the night before drinking. But um, anyhow, I appreciate you coming on the show, and we hope to have you on again soon. And uh, those of you that want to follow us out there on social media, we are Shift Drink Podcast on facebook and on instagram if you do want to follow us on twitter uh we are shift underscore drink um we tend to use instagram a little bit more than anything else um but you can always find us at shiftdrinkpodcast.com you can subscribe on itunes and uh you can also stream directly from our website so until next time thank you summer cooper for coming and visiting with us and arthur yes sir thank you guys for listening thank you thank you have a great week